I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. The genomic revolution promises to unlock the underlying mechanism of many rare diseases and disorders, but progress in translating new discoveries into therapies that benefit patients can be frustratingly slow. We spoke to Robert Ring, former chief scientific officer of Autism Speaks, about innovative efforts he's been involved with to overcome bottlenecks in translational medicine, advance research, and attract investment into drug development. Robert, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. We're going to talk about the evolving world of science and drug development and the changing role for various stakeholders in the process. I'd like to get at some of this through your work when you were chief science officer at Autism Speaks and some of the alliances you were able to foster. Perhaps, though, we can begin with autism itself. What is it? How does it manifest itself? And what treatments are available? Sure. Well, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, autism is, uh, you know, in my, in my view, a an evolving diagnostic construct. Uh, you know, it, it's really defined behaviorally by the presence of a core dyad of symptoms in the first few years of life, uh, the presence of social deficits and challenges with social interaction along with the the presence of uh, restricted behaviors and repetitive behaviors these are these are uh, symptoms that date back to one of the original descriptions by Leo Kanner in the 1940s and although that is really what the DSM-5 would uh, call autism today in reality for individuals living on the spectrum and for their families who form that care circle around them, autism is a far more complex uh, clinical journey for every individual. There's the presence of what we might call non-specific or comorbid uh, psychiatric and neurological symptoms, anxiety, challenges with attention and sleep. There's uh, high rates of uh, epilepsy in this population as well as the omnipresence of intellectual disability and so forth. Although everyone with an autism diagnosis may have that core dyad of, of, of symptoms, in reality there's a very significant heterogeneity to the population out there based on these comorbid symptoms. We're at this point where we're seeing rapid scientific advances in understanding diseases and disorders such as autism, but the process of translating these discoveries into therapies that benefit patients, I think most patients would say, has, has been frustratingly slow. Where are the bottlenecks in moving potential therapies from the lab to the marketplace? Yeah, with, with autism, there's some, I think there's some bottlenecks that are unique to this, shall we say, emerging therapeutic area uh, for drug discovery and development. And then there are 
challenges and bottlenecks, risks, if you will, that are not unique to autism but seem to be you know, more broad challenges all uh, drug discovery efforts are facing. Um, from an autism-centric uh, point of view, uh, I think one of the greatest challenges facing drug discovery and medicine development, before Autism Speaks, I headed the autism unit at Pfizer, which at the time was the first dedicated unit of its kind, trying to think how we do this, how we make medicines for disorders like autism. I've given this a lot of thought, but in, you know, I think from an autism point of view, one of the, the biggest challenges is the lack of precedent. Unlike well-trodden areas of psychiatry and neurology, major depression, schizophrenia, Alzheimer's disease, etc., cetera, uh, there really aren't any medicines out there that have been approved for autism. There's no precedent defining the regulatory paths, uh, giving confidence to the animal models and, and outcome measures that are all needed to help conduct very successful uh, development programs in this space. And as a result, there's a lot of perceived risk uh, for companies considering, you know, getting into the space. And when you have that kind of risk mapped on, you know, on top of an already risk-adverse world uh, uh, surrounding CNS drug development, it puts a lot of weight on, on the, uh, the field. Those are, I think, eminently addressable challenges spent a lot of time uh, thinking about at, at Autism Speaks. In, in that context, you've said that biomarkers can incentivize investment. B before we talk about that, can you explain what biomarkers are? Sure. Well, biomarkers are really, could be any anything out there that is measurable uh, in a physiological context that allows you to understand uh, the, the progression of a, a disease or the uh, effects of a particular drug and whether or not the effects of a particular drug may actually have some clinical be benefit. It could be uh, a test that measures something in the blood. It could be an imaging-based test that looks at function in the brain. It could be as simple as heart rate. Um, uh, these uh, measurements can be used in the context of clinical trials to help uh, understand uh, whether or not something's working much earlier and as a result can be very powerful uh, tools for mitigating risk and reducing the, the, the challenges of investment associated with risk. So in, in that context, discovering biomarkers that have meaning in autism could attract investment into the area by removing some of those regulatory uncertainties to, to the drug development? Yeah, they can. They may, may not uh, uh, address some of the regulatory uncertainties right away, but you know, as I mentioned earlier, one of the realities uh, facing uh, not just parents, but you know the, researcher, the research community with autism is the heterogeneity associated with it. You know, there is a long-standing saying among parents that if you've met one child with autism, you've met one child with autism. And in reality, uh, it, it, at, at this point in time, we really don't understand what is driving the heterogeneity in autism. But in reality, as, as uh, research moves forward and, and knowledge is created, 
uh, in many ways, this unitary construct of autism as a singular disorder is sort of failing beneath the weight of all this evidence that suggests it's likely uh, a disorder that has you know, hundreds, uh, if not thousands, of different subgroups uh, within it. And biomarkers can be a, a lens through which we understand those differences and a foundation on which the ontology that we classify all these subgroups would be based. And that's going to have very powerful uh, effects, one, on improving the, the quality and specificity of our clinical trials, but also realizing the promises of precision medicine and tailoring the right science for the right individual. And biomarkers, you know, up front will become a very, very powerful tool in enabling that. You were involved in, in several innovative initiatives at Autism Speaks. I'd like to touch on those and have you put into context how they can move research forward and serve as models for approaching other diseases and disorders. Can you talk a little about the Autism 10,000 Genome Project and its work with Google and, and where you hope that leads? Sure. This this plays really into what we were just talking about with regard to biomarkers that need to sort of deconstruct the complexity of autism heterogeneity. Uh, the 10,000 Genomes Project, which is actually called Missing at this point, Missing spelled M-S-S-N-G with the I is missing, uh, is a collaborative partnership uh, between Autism Speaks, uh, what was originally Google's cloud genomics group, now part of Virally, their life sciences uh, uh, spin out, and uh, academic researchers led by Steve Shear at the, the Hospital for Sick Children, Sick Kids up in Toronto. And our, our goal with Missing was really to um, leverage what we've known about risk uh, for autism for years. Although we can't tell you exactly what causes autism today, you know, over three decades of research have been very clear in implicating the genome uh, in the risk architecture for autism, from identical twin studies to sibling risk studies. We, when it comes to understanding autism risk, we know that many roads lead to the genome. So if you're going to really make a bet in trying to understand how you classify autism into different groups, you would really want to start with understanding the genetics of autism. And missing uh, really is a program that uh, is taking advantage of advances in genome sequencing to go out and whole genome sequence 10,000 individuals with autism. And it's not just individuals with autism, it's their entire family. We take parents, we take unaffected and affected SIDS, and we sequence every letter of code in each of their genomes. And the idea here is to take all of that data and put it up into a cloud infrastructure and allow open access to researchers anywhere in the world to mine that, looking for answers to the big questions uh, of what, what causes autism. How about EU AIMS, the Pre-Competitive Academic Industry Alliance? What is that and, and what do you hope will come from it? So EU AIMS is, is a, is a you know, wonderful example of, of how pre-competitive uh, consortia can be formed around a, an area of research that is in need of, of having a critical mass. Uh, and in the EU, there's a funding agency 
called the Innovative Medicines Initiative, or the IMI. Uh, while I was at Pfizer, we actually helped write a, a concept paper on which EU Ames was formed. And what EU Ames is is a, a um, consortium of over 20 research centers of excellence in academia across Europe, working side by side with some of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world, Roche, uh, Pfizer, uh, Lilly, uh, all of these working on a five-year, $58 million project aimed at trying to uh, move the science forward around autism, everything from the development of new animal models that can be used to evaluate interesting drug targets uh, to the formation of clinical trial infrastructure across Europe that would be necessary to help conduct the, uh, the clinical development programs of the future. Uh, this program, EU AIM, is actually arriving in its fifth year. It's been a very productive uh, research program. Just look at the publication record and some of the resources that have been developed. It's, it's quite an accomplishment. And then there's Delcia, or Delivering Scientific Innovation for Autism, a, a venture philanthropy effort from Autism Speaks. What do you see the role of venture philanthropy in advancing promising therapies from the lab to the marketplace? Well, Delcia, I think, is, is a, um, an example of a funding model that you're seeing increasingly more and more present in the nonprofit space. Uh, many nonprofit foundations have recognized that you, know, you can't just, you know, mobilize your resources uh, into academic research exclusively. You have to be really engaged uh, across the full value chain science, that proverbial translational research continuum that reduces the knowledge being created in academia to actual practice. And we know that the the value chain involves a lot of uh, partners, necessary partners uh, in the for-profit world that have uh, different incentives and, and different sources of resource to make them make them work. A, a lot of foundations are recognizing they've got to be able not just to be able to fund academic research, but they have to be far more explicitly engaged with companies and entrepreneurs and help get resources behind promising ideas in order to get through this proverbial translational valley of death that resides from late discovery into phase uh, two of the clinical development uh, cycle. And so Delcia for Autism Speaks was a, an experiment in launching a, a venture arm working very similar to a venture capital uh, firm in the, in the for-profit world, but taking resources of the foundation and finding promising companies and getting them uh, the capital they need to actually bring promising ideas forward. Well, what do you think drug development will look like five to ten years from now? How, how do you see it evolving? Well, I, I certainly see it evolving. And you know, I think there there continues to be an ongoing evolution in the models for how large pharma operates. But in reality, a lot of the value for drug development is going to be created in smaller companies and, and through entrepreneurship. And I think there's going to be an increasing convergence of other technology spaces into the world of medicines development. So let me explain what I mean. I, no, I think 
drug companies will continue to to uh, focus on their core areas of of work developing medicines for uh, unmet needs across various disease areas. But the role technologies are going to play in helping understand what is the right patient for the right drug are going to be increasingly a more important part in the process. So don't be surprised in addition to seeing technologies deliver therapies themselves like therapeutic games, but I see social media platforms and um, technologies that engage the patient community in a more active role in clinical development rather than the passive role they've traditionally played is something I think will really be uh, important five to ten years from now. Well, as drug development change, the key stakeholders in it are going to have to change. How do you think pharmaceutical companies and researchers need to change, particularly when it comes to engaging patients? Is it just social media or is it something beyond that? Well, I think there's a there's a significant um, and increasing role for patient groups in helping create uh, more of that digital surface area between patient communities and developers of medicines and other technologies that are going to be important for um, for their clinical care. And you know, so I I think you know foundations will increasingly be more active in helping to broker the, that active voice, if you will, the patient community and the shaping of where uh, medicine development is heading. How about regulatory agencies in, in terms of taking into account the needs and perspectives of patients? Well, I think regulatory, the FDA is already you know, exploring new models for better engaging uh, the, the patient community and defining what outcomes are for uh, clinical trials and ultimately what what hurdles companies uh, developing medicines or other therapeutic technologies are going to have to overcome in order for it to that product to be considered creating value for them. So I, I really do see this uh, this sort of increased um, engagement of the FDA with patient groups and defining the these uh, patient-reported outcome measures. And how about patient groups themselves? How do you see them evolving? Well, I, I think as uh, as some of the technologies we've already discussed, particularly in the area of genomics, that increase our understanding of, of the differences between individuals within traditional disease areas, whether or not that be cancer or autism, you're going to see a, a rapid expansion of groups forming around this knowledge. And what I mean by that is every time a new mutation or variant is identified and associated with a particular disorder that one family or a group of families may have been, it may have been called autism before, but it may be called a genetic syndrome after that discovery. We see already parents and, and groups forming around that knowledge and, and uh, organizing themselves in, in ways that make them more useful to the research community. With every new um, generation of discovery in the genomic space, we're going to see a, a, a community of new patient groups formed as a result of those findings. So I think one of the key challenges moving forward is figuring out ways to better aggregate this growing uh, community 
community of patient groups that are coming with each cycle of discovery. Robert Ring, former Chief Scientific Officer of Autism Speaks. Robert, thanks so much for your time today. Pleasure. If you'd like to learn more about Robert Ring's work at Autism Speaks, join Global Genes for its annual Rare Patient Advocacy Summit in Huntington Beach, California, starting September 22nd. For more information, go to globalgenes.org and select Patient Advocacy Summit under the Events tab. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.